messed up. This country's messed up. We need you to open up the floodgates and pour out your spirit. Father, we, we read about and some of us have experienced from the 1970s a, a revival that came in parts of this country and other revivals that have happened since then. And Father, we know that it's only when you come down with your power, when your Holy Spirit comes down in a powerful way, and you transform lives, you draw people to you, and that's what you do. God, I pray that you help us to be open, open to the move of your Holy Spirit. We invite your Holy Spirit right now. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that are facing challenges that are too big for them. I pray, Lord, that you would help each person to compare their problems with the greatness of you, how great you are, not with their limited resources or abilities. Father, I just pray that you would confirm your presence with us, that you would speak through the word of God. Father, that we know the word is, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living. It's alive. It changes us. And I just pray that nothing in me would get in the way of what you want to say to us today from the living word of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is just a side note. How many of you have seen the movie Woodlawn? Woodlawn, okay. How many of you have seen War Room? Okay, more. If you, you've got to see War Room and Woodlawn. They both start with W. Can you guys remember that? Should be easy. Woodlawn, it's a story, it's a story of how God absolutely transformed an entire city I don't know how many of you remember when, when they're going into these news clips in the time in, in the early, early 70s when in, integration was coming about, they were, they were busing students in, in, from the inner city and they were, they were coming into that and the, the tension between races were amazing. Kids, by the way, you are dismissed at Kids Zone. We got it, okay. They'll learn to go even if we don't let them go. So that's... But the story is about how God used a football team and how God began to bring reconciliation through transformation through Jesus Christ. And, and it's an amazing story, and it's a story we need to see and to be reminded of, and actually and, and a great encouragement, because what God did back then, he can do today. So I'd encourage you to um, see both of those movies if you get a chance. I want to invite you today to a dinner party. I want you to join me in a beautiful, spacious house going through the inner courtyard to the dining room. The dining room is covered with thick Persian rugs on, on, on the floor. The walls are adorned with beautiful handcrafted wall hangings. And in the center of this room is a long, low table with cushioned couches that run the full length on either side of the table. The room is lit with oil lamps and it's very comfortable, very inviting. We're having a dinner in several courses and servants seem to appear out of nowhere to fill empty glasses. 
We are reclining at table on our left elbows, sitting on our sides, sandals removed, with our feet out behind us. It's really an amazing occasion. The host is a man named Simon, a Pharisee. Then, as so often happens in our life, something totally unexpected happens, an interruption. I'd like us to read about it as we turn to the story in Luke 7. Luke 7, it's on page 839 in the, in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Luke 7, it's also going to be on the screen, starting with verse 36. Luke 7, starting with verse 36. Let's join the story. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sin, many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here in this story, we have three characters. Simon the Pharisee, the woman sinner, and number three, Jesus. Could you pull me down just a tad bit? I feel like I'm a little loud. Here we go. So we have three characters, the Pharisee, the woman, and Jesus. And the question today, the title, is who are you? Who are you? Who are you most like? Which character do you most identify with? And what can we learn from each character? Three characters in contrast. Let's start with Simon the Pharisee. Simon was a typical Pharisee. He was a traditionalist. He was a legalist. What was he like? First of all, he was more concerned about tradition than people. Tradition instead of people. The woman who interrupted his dinner was a sinner, probably a prostitute. And the Jews had rules about associating with known sinners, this type of person. Their rules and traditions dictated every single action. They were supposed to follow the rules. Their understanding was that following the rules was how they pleased God. 
See, Simon's relationship with God was not a relationship at all. It was more like a contract, a a contractual obligation. I do, I don't do, therefore, I'm okay with God. There was no thought to the internalization of his faith. His religion consisted only of outward observable actions. I look good, therefore, I am good. Secondly, Simon was inhospitable. Inhospitable. Now, there's no reason to think that Simon was hostile to Jesus, but he did not take the accepted measures of hospitality. In the ancient Near East, if you had a visitor, there were certain standard protocols, accepted standards of behavior, things that you did when people came to your house. They are your guests. There are certain things that you did. The first thing you did is you, you washed their feet. You give them water to wash their feet because the roads were dusty, people wore sandals, and they would have their feet washed. Second, you would give a kiss of greeting. Thirdly, you would anoint their head with oil. And these three things were signs of respect, courtesy, and love. Now, in today's world, you know, if somebody came to your door and you said, come on in, let me wash your feet, they'd probably get mad or feel insulted. We don't do that because we have paved roads and sidewalks. Instead, a modern equivalent, somebody comes over to your house, you would do, say things like, may I take your coat? Would you like something to drink? Please have a seat. Make yourself at home. Then we learned in my house, of course, you always serve guests first, then you pass the food to the rest of the family. These are standard manners and protocol if you have guests in your house. And Simon ignored all these standard protocols and was not hospitable, and that showed his true attitude toward Jesus, his true attitude. Thirdly, Simon was judgmental, judgmental. He, he drew conclusions, he judged, he thought the worst. When he looked at the woman, he immediately judged this woman as unworthy to even be in his house. He judged her for her past. It says he watched her in contempt. He also judged Jesus. He watched Jesus in contempt. His thoughts were Jesus could not be a prophet because he didn't know what kind of woman this was. I mean, everybody knew what this woman was. She was a prostitute. Is Jesus clueless? What is the deal? A religious person surely would never associate with such a person, a prostitute. Certainly no one would would touch a person or, or allow a sinner to touch them judgmental. There's an interesting Greek construct in this, in this particular passage. It's the use of the word if. If is a conditional. If this, then that. And in our language, we just have if and then. In, in the original language, you had first class conditional and second class conditional. First class conditional was if this is the case, then this is also true. Second class is if this is the case, this is not true. And you can tell by the construct of the if and the sentence, whether the assumption was true or not true. This is a second-class conditional sentence. If he was a prophet, he would know. In other words, the assumption is he is not a prophet. He's judging Jesus. He assumes Jesus is not a prophet. It's an arrogant statement. And in his judgmental attitude, Simon proved, number four, he did not know God. He did not know God. He had his concept of a prophet, a representative, or or spokesperson for God, and how God would react to sinners. His concept of God was someone who would not associate with sinners. Of course, when Jesus came, he totally contradicted all that they thought about God relating to sinners. In Luke 5, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call a righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Jesus came to show that God loves and associates with us sinners. Isn't that good news? Number five, Simon did not know himself. He didn't know himself. Simon was arrogant. He was proud. He thought he was worth more to God than anybody else. He thought he was, he was more important, better than she was, and knew far more than Jesus. He was kind of a know-it-all. You like know-it-alls, don't you? He didn't know how wrong he was. And finally, in his arrogance, Simon loved little. Had little love. He did not have much love. So how about us today? Are we like Simon? Who are you? Are we so concerned about traditions that people don't matter? Are we more concerned about our comfort with rules and boundaries than with people? Judy and I served in a church in Seattle that we saw something happen. They had some traditions, a lot of traditions, some were written and most were not. It's kind of, the, you gotta know the rules when you go into the church, how, how you do certain things. One such unwritten rule was no hats in the sanctuary. Okay, have no hats, you can have hats in the sanctuary. And this tradition may have started as a noble attempt to establish respect and proper etiquette. But one particular Sunday, there was a young man probably 19, 20 years old, that was seated on a bench right outside the sanctuary. And he had on a baseball cap. I think it said, I think it said Green Bay Packers or something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> not in Seattle, probably not. But he had, he had a baseball hat on, okay? And he stood up and moved, turned to enter the sanctuary. And the usher stopped him and said, don't you dare go into the sanctuary with that hat on. And the young man just stopped, stunned, looked confused, and turned and walked away. I don't think he ever came back. Rules. Are rules more important than people? We have rules in church. We have these rules for Christianity. The way we do church, the standards of, of dress, certain pet doctrines that are not biblical, just traditional. How about the style of music? I, Judy and I listened to a song. We hadn't heard it since the 70s. We're gonna, I'm gonna play it one of these days. It, was, it came out in the 70s when everybody's reacting against rock and roll. And it's a great rock and roll tune called Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? You don't think that's funny. Okay, that's okay. Well, <laughs> I'll bring the lyrical content and we'll play it for you. One of the, we'll have the band play it, whatever, whatever. But the style of music, sometimes we feel like well, what our preferences are are more important than other people. It's more, is it more important that we're comfortable or are, are people more important than our preferences? Secondly, do we exercise genuine hospitality? Every Sunday we have first-time guests. Are we more concerned about someone else's comfort or our own? Am I here to be comfortable or to make guests feel comfortable? Um, some of you have your place where you sit every Sunday, okay? Now, I, I, that's, that's okay. You know, as long as when someone's in your seat, you don't kick them out. Okay, that's kind of, <laughs> churches, I, and I'm, I'm like you, you know, when I go into a room for the first time, I kind of scope out the room. I don't want to be in the front. I, I hate being in the front row. Thank you for being in the front, by the way. I, I kind of I find my way about a quarter of the way up and on an aisle and stuff, and I find my comfort zone, and, that's, and if I attend that place many times, whether it's a classroom that I'm attending, a class or service or whatever, I find my comfort zone and I sit there. I, I know that's what it's like. But it's not about me feeling comfortable. It's about 
welcoming guests and inviting them. It's kind of like if you come to my house, I have my chair. It's dad's chair. It's the leather, leather chair with the ottoman. You know, that's, that's my chair. But if you come to our house, I'm going to say, have a seat. You can sit in my chair. It's not, it's not about me being comfortable. It's about you being comfortable. And so when, when we welcome guests as a church, are we more concerned about our comfort or about their comfort? What is our purpose here? Number three, are we judgmental? Are we quick to judge by external or appearances? Are we quick to judge by another person's past history? Do we quickly forget the grace and mercy of God, how we were forgiven, his forgiveness? Do we really know God, or do we have misconceptions of his love, mercy, grace, and acceptance? Are we conditional or unconditional in our acceptance of people? Yes, God is a God of righteousness, justice, and holiness, but we exercise his love. He exercises justice. Are we arrogant? Do we think that we're better than anyone else? God loves me most. Some of you are old enough to remember the Smothers Brothers. How many of you remember the Smothers Brothers? Mom loved you best. Okay, it was always love, loved you best. Sometimes we, we think that God loves me best. Okay, God loves me best. God loves Americans best. Or God loves Republicans the most. Or God loves the Wesleyans the best. Or you, you fill in the blank. And sometimes we think, you know, and, and we ought to know that we're special to God, but God doesn't love us best. He loves us all the same. Are we just favored of God or what? Do we love little? That's the question. Because we are forgiven little, Sometimes we love little. Simon the Pharisee, who are you? Then we have the second character in our cast. This is the woman, the woman. What was this woman like? First of all, she had a history. She had a history. And by that, I mean a bad history, a bad reputation. A sinner in this context was synonymous with a prostitute. She worked in the sex trade. And nobody disputed this fact. It was well known, it was well documented. This made her untouchable, it made her an unwelcome guest. You don't want to have anything to do with somebody that worked in the sex trade. But this woman who was a sinner was also prepared by God. Now I gotta explain this, what do I mean? Somehow this woman who knew she was a sinner also knew that she might have a chance of being accepted by God. Something gave her hope. Something gave her faith. She had learned Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And you know what, what it was? It was the grace of God drawing her, speaking to her, preparing her heart for hope and faith. Preparing her to know that somehow God cared about her and Jesus loved her. This is what happened whether you, whether you came to Jesus when you were four years old, 40 years old, or 84 years old. This is what Jesus did. He prepared our heart. It's, it's the grace of God that draws us to himself. It's called prevenient grace or grace that goes before, preparing grace. And this woman was a recipient of prevenient grace or that preparing grace. It's what all of us were recipients of. You know, we can't say, well, I, I found Jesus one day. No, no. You were drawn by the grace of God that gave you hope and faith and that preparing grace brought you into contact with the living God and Jesus changed and transformed your life. She was, she was prepared by God. 
prevenient grace awakens us to our need for forgiveness and for a relationship with God. And, and I don't know when that happened, or maybe it hasn't happened with you yet, but that's what God does when he opens our eyes and says, God is a seeking, loving God. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be your friend, the friend of God. He calls us friend. That's what he wants. That's God's work. That's God's work. Somehow, God's preparing grace got this woman ready to come. Thirdly, this woman was courageous. It was a huge risk for her to take, a known prostitute, coming to the house of a, basically, this was a religious professional. I mean, he was, he, he was a, he did religion for a profession, you know, Pharisee. When he had important guests, an important party, she shows up. Talk about risk. Somebody asks, well, how'd she get into the, how'd she get into the house? You know, we, we, we live in the context of important people live in gated communities and, and they have security and all that other stuff. Well, back then it wasn't that way. Bruce Larson says, a party in those days was a public event. Homes had open courts and uninvited guests could stand around and observe the guests and the festivities. Cool. I don't think we liked that, but it was back then, if you had a party, whatever, get, you know, people could come and they could observe. That's what this woman did. But to actually enter and to approach this particular guest was very risky. Fourth, we find that this woman was repentant. She was aware of her need. Wasn't blind. She was very sorry for her past wrongs. She demonstrated her remorse by weeping profusely. So many tears she could actually wash Jesus' feet with him wiping it with her hair. I have never seen such a display of tears in my life. Maybe you have. Talk about an incredible outpouring of emotion. This woman was sorrowful. She was repentant. So much so that the tears that were produced were so abundant that she could wash Jesus' feet. She was grateful. She demonstrated a gratefulness which comes from the root of grace by anointing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. She brought it ahead of time. This was not cheap perfume. It was an alabaster jar of perfume. This was expensive stuff. She was transparent, letter F, genuine, real, and authentic. She showed her true feelings. Sometimes we feel like when we go to God, we just have to kind of put a facade up. No, God wants to see the real us. He wants the transparency. He wants to see who we are. And she was going to allow herself to be shown in spite of the fact that there were a lot of people watching. She did not care. She was transparent. Some people believe this woman had no intention of washing Jesus' feet with tears, only anointing them with perfume. But as the tears flowed, she displayed a beautiful transparency as she wiped them with her hair. Humble, transparent. There was open sorrow and affection. She didn't hide anything. And finally, this woman loved much. She loved much. Why did she love much? Because she had been forgiven much, forgiven much. Can you identify with this woman this morning? Having a history, a bad history, sins you don't think God will ever forgive. You don't want anyone to know about it. Or maybe not terribly bad, but just not feeling you're good enough to measure up to what God's asking. God's preparing you this morning. You're, you're not here by accident. Prevenient grace 
God's preparing grace produces hope and faith that God loves you and wants to do something special in your life. Courageous. It always takes courage to admit we're sinners, to admit we need God, to come to faith. And if we have a history, and all of us do, are you repentant? Are you truly sorry? Sorrowful for your past. We must take responsibility for our past actions. I did it. Then say, sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry and sorrow are inextricably connected. When I disciplined my children as they were growing up, I could tell when they were really sorry, or you'd say, tell your sister you're sorry. I'm sorry. Well, that, that didn't cut it. I'd say, no. I'd make sure that there were tears. And if that required a board of education or some other way that we'd have to get sorrow, somehow there had to be tears. There had to be a demonstration of true sorrow. And, and that's what God wants. We're very hesitant to show that we're sorry or repentant, but God calls us to be sorrowful. True sorrow is to completely turn. Grateful, are we grateful knowing that all this comes from God? Coming from God. See, this grace, all of this, this action that he does is God's work. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift, we don't earn a gift, it's a gift. Are we transparent, are we real and genuine, authentic in our approach to God? Do we love much? The more we've been forgiven, the more we love God. So do you identify with the woman today? Who are you? Well, whether you're here this morning and, and identify with Simon the self-righteous Pharisee, who had never done a lot of wrong things, living in judgment on the less fortunate, or if you feel more like the sinner with a terrible past like this woman, Jesus brought both of them together under one roof to show his love for both of them. For both of them. I hope we are all a little like Jesus, who's the third character in this story. What was Jesus like? First of all, he was all-knowing. He knew what kind of woman this was, and it also says he knew and read Simon's innermost thoughts. He knew Simon's character, he knew the woman's character. In the same way Jesus knows us, the good, the bad, the ugly, all things. There's nothing hidden from God. We don't need to pretend he knows. And in spite of that all-knowing, Jesus loved them both. Loved them both. Jesus doesn't gloss over sin, whether it's the sin of pride, arrogance, and judgment, or the sin of immorality and prostitution. Despite our condition of sin, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. And whether you've committed sins you think are unforgivable, or you think you're a terrific person who doesn't need God, God loves you. And because of that love that he has for us, Jesus, thirdly, forgives. He forgives. Some people wait their entire life hoping to hear those words, I forgive you. I think if we all thought back on our life, different things that we've done, there are things that we say, I don't know if I ever was forgiven for that. I don't know if I can get forgiveness for that. I don't know. 
we all carry things that we regret, that we need forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean to you? Clean slate, new start, restored relationship. And the worse the offense, the more we appreciate the forgiveness. That's what Jesus said in verse 47. He said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. In actuality, we all have many sins and we all have been forgiven much. The question, are you forgiven today? Do you extend forgiveness or are we like Simon, unable to see people as they are forgiven? Do we see people as they used to be, or can we see people as Jesus sees them? One of my prayers every week as Eau Claire Wesleyan Church is the church in dispersion, where we just meet together here for an hour or two on Sunday and maybe in small groups. We are the church dispersed in many different parts of the city, the county, probably the state. Some people travel internationally. We are the church dispersed, and my prayer for you is that you would see people as Jesus sees them. Broken, lost, in need of forgiveness. We have to stop looking at people as they were and look at them as forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new is here. New. Jesus never minimizes sin. He came to fulfill the law. His standards for perfection and right moral behavior are just as high as they've always been. Jesus never minimizes sin, but maximizes forgiveness. He never minimizes sin, he maximizes forgiveness. That's why he forgives sin. And finally, Jesus, what else is Jesus? Jesus saves. In verse 50, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He gave her peace with God, peace with herself, and peace with others. The question I ask you today is, do you have peace? Do you have peace with God? Do you know for certain that Jesus has forgiven your sins? Do you know for certain that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? And if you stood before God and he asked, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you say? I'm not too bad. I'm, I'm better than most. Or would you say, Jesus forgave my sins. Jesus gave me peace with God. Three characters, three persons. Who are you? God may be calling you to receive his forgiveness today. God may be calling you to extend his forgiveness and forgive someone else. God may be calling you to let someone know about God's incredible forgiveness, extended to all, regardless of their life situation, so they too can experience forgiveness and a new start. Who are you? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you have given us a great historical account of life change. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would challenge us anew. To understand how you see people. And understand, Lord Jesus, that you give us new life. You forgive. And I pray this morning, Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, never received that forgiveness, that they would turn to you and ask for forgiveness, knowing that you love them. You want to be their friend. You want to grant them peace with God and eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand and let's sing this as a prayer tonight. I want us to take some time. We're going to sing that again. And if you have a decision that you want to make, you want prayer to receive forgiveness, to extend forgiveness, whatever that is, we're just going to open the altars. You can stand, kneel, whatever you want to do up here. You can, you can stand or kneel where you are. We're just going to take some time as we sing this again and, uh, and give this time to the Lord. There'll be people here to pray for you if you want prayer. So let's sing this again. This is my desire. As we sing, you come. We're going to close in just a minute. I'm going to invite, ask if um, Dan and Diana would stand over here and pray for those. And if Mike and Rachel, if you guys would come over here. If you, if you want prayer, we believe in answered prayer. And if you have prayer for some need this morning, don't leave until you've joined one of our leaders in prayer and uh, shared that with them before we leave today. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.